God's love for us is amazing. This morning, as we continue our sermon series, Coming Home for Christmas, I want you to imagine that you come home, and when you get there, God's love is waiting for you. That's one of the reasons why during Advent, we've asked people to read scripture passages in different languages, in their heart languages, because God speaks to us. In use, God's love speaks to us, to our hearts. And he speaks to us using words and using language that we know and love. God is not limited in the ways that we are limited, and his love is far greater than our love, greater even than we can imagine. As we think about love this morning, it strikes me that our focus is on words and how we use our words with care. But in preparing for this sermon, I wondered, you know, what can I say that hasn't already been said? This was a difficult sermon to write, maybe because love is so personal to each of us, or maybe because uh, we all think that we already know everything, or at least we know enough about love already. But as Duke just read for us out of the Apostle John's letter to the church, he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We don't see God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John tells us what we're doing and what we're celebrating at Christmas, that God's love has come to us and lives in us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so Jesus, the Word made flesh, is God's perfect example of love to us. And also, we are God's example of love to one another. If you've ever been in church before, which most of you have, I expect that you've heard that Jesus died for your sins. But as we think about love, I don't just want to think about the actions of Jesus as central to the Christian life. It's Jesus himself who's central to our lives as Christians. In other words, Christians celebrate not just what Jesus has done for us, but also who Jesus is. Yes, Jesus' actions are important. Dying on the cross, being raised to new life. But Jesus' teachings also. Yes, Jesus' miracles, his healings, the signs and wonders. But also Jesus' relationships with the Father, with his disciples, with you. So today for a few minutes we're going to reflect on how Jesus' words show his heart of love for God and for humanity. And we're going to be challenged, I hope, to follow Jesus' example. So to do that I'm going to read just a few more verses from the Gospel of John this time. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus said, or after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says to the Father, I have brought you the glory on earth. 
by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Consider for just a few minutes Jesus' words of love here. Glorify me, Father, that I may glorify you. And he also says eternal life means knowing you, God, being connected with you always. What, a beautiful, what beautiful words of love Jesus says to his Father. We might also consider the cost of Jesus' words. Jesus knows that he will be glorified only through his suffering and death. Jesus knows that he will bring the Father's eternal life to the world by giving up his own life. There is a great cost to Jesus for his love to the Father and his love to us. But because Jesus loves the Father so much and because Jesus has received so much love from the Father, he's willing to pay any price. Jesus' love for the Father is rooted in the glory of God from the beginning. What is glory, what's this glory that Jesus talks about? Well, one theological dictionary defines it this way. It says the term connotes or means honor and fame as coming from social status that includes greatness, wealth, and power, the acknowledgement of others. In other words, glory, Jesus' glory with the Father, is about greatness. God is great and powerful. God is not only good, he is the source of all good in creation. God is not only in charge of the world, he's not just responsible for it, but he actually created everything that exists. And so he knows everything and everyone intimately. God's glory is tied up with all these realities. What's more, Jesus understands that his love for the Father and the Father's love for him is so great that there is room for more people to experience glory together with the triune God. This is what happens when uh, a father and mother get together and decide they would like to have a child. That their love is so great that they have enough love to share. I say that, of course, by analogy. But this is what God has done with us as well. There's so much room within the love and the glory of our triune God that God invited us to join and share in his great love and in his glory. In this prayer to the Father, Jesus makes clear that he doesn't have glory for his own sake to use for himself. In other words, he doesn't have or hold his honor or status, his greatness, his wealth, his power for himself. His glory exists for the sake of others, to bless others. And how many times, if you've read the Gospels, how many times have you seen Jesus do exactly that? He drove out demons. He healed the sick. When an unclean woman touched him, he did not become unclean, but instead he shared his purity with her so that she became clean too. What an amazing love that is. Likewise, when people on the edge of society came to him, Jesus always helped them. Jesus' words of love here about people are backed up by a lifetime of Jesus' loving actions. 
And more than that, they're backed up by Jesus' perfect heart of love for others. But Jesus' heart of love didn't just originate with himself. Jesus' heart of love is always filled up by the Father. We see this time and time again in Jesus' life on earth. Someone else said to me earlier this week, it's easy for us to think about Jesus as God these days, but we sometimes forget that Jesus was fully human. And time and time again in the Gospels, we see Jesus, the man, the human, returning home to be with his Father. And I don't mean, of course, that Jesus was making short trips back, commuting to heaven and back. But Jesus was going to be with his Father. Many of us know this, don't we? That we can move home in our lives. The house where we park our things is just one of our homes that we might have in our lives. But we can always make a home when we are with the people we love. And Jesus loved the Father. And regularly throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus receding, going away, going to some place in the desert, going up on some mountain, withdrawing. Why? So that he could be with the Father. So that he could be home. He could receive and be filled up with the Father's love. Time and time again, Jesus is is interrupted. He goes to pray. He goes to listen. He goes to be with the Father and then something happens. Someone interrupts him. But he goes back. He always craves more time with the Father and always desires to be filled with the Father's love. Filled to overflowing. We might think that the acts of Jesus are most important, but I think the character of Jesus is just as important. What we find time and time again, not only in the Bible, but also in our own lives, is that it's not enough, actually, to just do the right thing or to do what seems to be the loving thing. Often we intend to do the right thing. We try to do the loving thing and still it doesn't work out. Wisdom calls us, God calls us, not just to do the right thing, but to do the right thing at the right time and for the right reason. As an example, James and John, Jesus' disciples, want to be great in the kingdom of God. That's certainly a good thing, isn't it? But they don't want it for the right reason, and they don't want it at the right time. They want to be great because they're Jesus' cousins, and so they're trying to get special family treatment. And they want to be great on earth so that they can overthrow the Romans, not so that God's name would be great. We see many examples in our own lives, too, that truly good actions, truly loving actions, aren't just about doing the right thing or doing the loving thing, but it's doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And we can only do that when we are devoted to God and when our hearts have been filled up by God and by his love. What are these right things that God calls us to do? Well, uh, the second scripture we're going to look at this morning is, comes from Ephesians 4, where Paul gives us a little bit of a walking start here. This certainly isn't everything, but it's a place to start. Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk 
come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may, be benef- that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of re- redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Just a moment ago, I said that truly good actions, truly loving actions, come from a heart that is devoted to God because it's been filled up by God. And we can do the right things at the right, that only then can we do the right things at the right time and for the right reason. So let, remind, let me remind you again that it's not enough to just go through the motions nor to make it look like we are doing the right thing. Excuse me. I lost my water bottle this, mo- this week, so I'm dry this morning. I'm sorry. It's not enough to go through the motions. It's not enough to make it look like we are doing the kind or loving thing. I learned this uh, during Kaylee and my life in Colorado. I was on a text group with a number of friends, uh, six, there were six of us or so, and uh, one of us was going through a hard time. There was three or four months where he just needed a lot of help. And so he would text the group, and he would ask, uh, can someone watch my kids? Can you give me a ride? Will you come help do some work around the house? Other people in the, in the text group would very quickly respond, and they would offer help or advice or prayer or encouragement of some kind. And what I would do is pipe in at the last minute and offer some help as well. I knew it was probably too late, but I thought it would be nice to chime in. Better late than never, right? After I did this three or four times in a row, another of my friends called me. Can you believe he called me? We were texting. But he called me, and he actually called me out. He said, Adrian, stop it. You only want to look good. You only want to look kind, but you never actually help them out. You always offer a kind word or an offer for help, and it's already too late. So either offer to help in a kindly way, in a timely way, or don't speak up at all. My friend's words caused me to take a long, hard look at my heart. To look behind my kind words and my loving words and to wonder, what's really there? Am I doing this and offering out of genuine love for my friend and care for him? Or am I just trying to say what I think is the right thing to put on a good show? The, uh, the economist Thomas Friedman wrote a book in 2016 called Thank You for Being Late. And the premise of the book is that our lives are so busy that he was sitting down at a meeting and someone came 15, 20 minutes late to the meeting and they said, oh, I'm so sorry for keeping you waiting. He said, no, thank you for being late. I needed a little bit of time just to be quiet with myself. So this was his guide for thriving in an age of acceleration of a fast-paced life. And there's a section in that book where he talked about communities 
that love and care for one another in the midst of our very busy world. And this is what he said. He said, when my dad died suddenly, my widowed mom couldn't afford my college tuition. So Maury, uh, a a friend of the family, Maury and his friend, Jake Garber, my dad's boss, my aunt and uncle, all pitched in. Maury was the driving force behind it all, though. I did not come to him for help. He just came to me one day and said, look, you can't afford this. And that he would make it happen. It was a powerful lesson in community for me, he writes. When you're in a real one, never ever say to someone in need, call me if you need help. If you want to help someone, just do it. I wonder if you've ever considered whether your words, even your kind words, are actually loving. When community is working, we don't just say nice things. We don't just offer help. We, we actually follow Jesus' example and do the loving thing. Jesus doesn't hold his honor, his status, his greatness, or wealth, or power for his own sake. He gives it freely and lovingly without waiting to be asked. The story of the good news is not that humanity had a bright idea and reached out to God and said, oh, would you please help us? If you want to put the gospel in a sentence, you would put it this way and say, while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. Before we even thought to ask for help, he reached out. We weren't able to ask for help. And he was there. So when we speak to one another, are we saying the things that we are convinced we have a right to say? Are we saying the things that make us feel good or prove ourselves right or good or loving in our own eyes? If that's the way that we live, then we're using our position, or at least we're using our words, for our own sake. Instead, we should consider how we might use our position, our opportunity, our gifts, and our words to build others up. This isn't just a moral responsibility. That's a natural outflow of our obedience to Christ when we're following him. This isn't, in other words, an idea that I had that I think it would be good for you to adopt. This is the model, the perfect model that Jesus gives us. The model we are invited to follow. Maybe it seems to you this morning like there's so much wrong and broken in our world that we don't need to focus on something so small as just our words. But out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. This is why Paul commands us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To grieve the Holy Spirit is to ignore the Holy Spirit's testimony. To go our own way, to work for our own glory, our own good name. This is not the example of Jesus. Instead, we listen to God. As Christians, we follow Jesus' example and the examples of other faithful Christians. Again, as Paul writes, we speak, quote, to benefit all who listen, not to benefit ourselves. If we come home and we find love at home, we find our hearts opening in self sacrifice, don't we? When we walk in, Uh, and walk into a room and experience love, we are eager 
to give whatever it takes to remain there, to grow deeper together, first with those who are closest to us and then later with those who are further as well. This is because Jesus willingly and joyfully paid the price for love. That he gave everything of himself out of love to the, to the glory of the Father and to love for humanity. So the call to follow Jesus requires a lot of us as well. God calls us to give everything we do and everything we are to God. This is, of course, much more than just our words. But our words, and this is why we're focusing on our words this morning, our words are the first gauge or check to see how our hearts are being transformed by Christ. We, we can't and shouldn't try to control our feelings, but we can direct our thoughts and words. We can check in just at that basic level about what, I'm, what am I saying? And is that really loving to others? Is it really glorifying to God? And so as we close, I want to encourage you to do just that. Maybe this afternoon, maybe this coming week. Take some time to check in with yourself about the quality of your love for others and your love for God. I had the opportunity to check in this past week at Shalem Senior Community Living when I sat in a circle with a number of seniors and we had a celebration for the life of George Van Dyke for those residents there. I read Psalm 23 about God's love, words that I've read hundreds of times. But this time, the words, one little phrase stuck out to me. My cup overflows. And I realized that if and when the quality of my love is weak, it's not in my power to fix it or improve it. If the quality of my love is weak, then, like Jesus, I can and must go back to the Father, to be filled up with his love once again. And what a joy we have as Christians because God will always fill you up to overflowing. You cannot love, we cannot love enough on our own. So come home with Jesus. Come home to the Father. Receive his love, which he will fill you up to overflowing. Let's come to him in prayer as we close this portion of our service together. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your great love which fills us up to overflowing. Thank you for the way in which we see the love of Jesus embodied in the Gospels and for the way in which we are reminded this morning that Jesus' love is not his own, certainly not in a human sense, but that he too was filled with your love. God, may we follow Jesus' example and always return to you, the source of life, the source of love, that we might be filled up, not just filled up halfway or filled up a little bit, but filled to overflowing. Remind us, Lord, that when we are home with you, there is love enough to go around and more to spare. Help us to experience your love together as we close our worship service and as individuals, as families, as friends, as a community going into the coming week. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.